I, I think of these, you know, sort of innovation arenas emerging that are a little bit like these massive multiplayer online games that have sort of uh, mechanics that exist and are codified into the system and they're digitally transacted in a trustful way. Um, but the way in which you show up to play the game and the way in which the game will get played is almost not even predictable. And because of how complex and adaptive it is that the person who designed the game is effectively also playing the game by trying to respond to the way in which the players play the game. And you just end up with something sort of beautiful and vibrant and the level of creativity that can emerge from that, I think is, is fascinating. Okay, Brian, thanks for joining us on the podcast. How are you doing today? Doing well. Thanks for having me, Robbie. Perfect. So you're here with uh, your company, Sobel. Um, where, where, are you, where are you calling in from? Uh, I'm in, in Wellesley, Ontario, so uh, just outside the uh, Waterloo uh, tech ecosystem. Definitely. So it seems like more and more companies are coming out of there. Uh, it's, not, it's a nonstop uh, generator of technology. Are you, are you from the area or did you move in? I moved in, I went to school at University of Waterloo, uh, but, uh, and then have lived in the area for, I guess it's coming up on a decade now. Mm, nice. Cool. So, uh, tell me, um, Sobel, uh, one of the, one of the descriptions you have is, uh, you're trying to move from the future of work to the future of play. Uh, I, I kind of love that tagline. Um, I, I had a chance to go through your website, uh, you know, previously, uh, before the episode starts and it's a kind of a cool concept. Uh, I, I'm really intrigued. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Yeah, certainly. I mean, the future of work to future of play is is really a North Star for us in the sense that um, when we look at work today, you know, and there's all those engagement stats and all the, the icky discussions about how um, work feels like work and, you know, what is it that's getting in the way of it maybe feeling a little more like play, a little more fun, um, and and all the beautiful productivity benefits that come from when we're fully engaged and having fun. And so I think that is the North Star. That's the place we want to go. And then the 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 journey we're on is basically just unpacking what are the barriers to that, and and continuing to ask the five whys when we step on each of those, um, and sort of build a build a path uh, towards that future, and also be a bit of a flag bearer to attract others because there's no way we're building that all by ourselves. No, I, I love this. So the future, the future the work to play, right? Especially that, like one of the aspects of like entrepreneurship that really drives people to it, it's like if, because they control the workflow, it, they, they get to enjoy, they get to enjoy the work more, yeah. right? Like one of the, one of the draws of that is, is there, but when you work for somebody else, you know, you, one of the benefits is that you no longer, you know, the onus is not on you. You you have your task outlined for you. Someone's managing you. Someone's taking care of you. So it's, uh, you know, it's like you, you know how your days are kind of regulated. But at the same time, that takes the fun out of things, right? Like um, there was a guy, I forgot what the the author was. I think it might have been the four-hour work week, uh, Tim Ferriss, talking yep. about how like, um, you know, this, this four hours of productivity, hyper-productivity that most people are each week, you know, this flow state you go into. It really comes out of like you know uh, when you really enjoy what you do, right? When you have a depth of knowledge uh, in the in the particular field, and uh, you can like get into this mode of like performing. So uh, play, I think, is like a it's a misnomer because you know we think of play as like as something that you know you waste time on, you know, video games or like sports or like something you do externally. But when you when you when we put play and into work together, I think we get something magical because that's some creative elements come out of it. Right. Uh, and um, what, what are your thoughts on this? Like, what does that what does that mean for you? Work and play? 
Yeah, I mean, you're 100%, you know, uh, on point there with with your description. It's it's it, when we look at play and how we play and and how we get into flow state um, and and how productivity and and things productive outcomes can come from that. Um, and people do sort of just think of play as oh, this is how I blow off steam or you know this is a completely unproductive use of my time. Um, but the truth is, is when we were children, we were playing, we were building stuff, right? Mm. Like you know and 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 you like you said you know say when you say a founder right a lot of what draws founders to being founders is that that sense of autonomy over our work um, and that same thing happens when we're playing you know um, we can decide how we're we're showing up which fields we're showing up to when we're a kid you know it's like uh, you know I want to play soccer today mm -hmm. and so I'm gonna go and congregate with the other people who have the soccer ball and we're gonna play soccer and so yeah there's that that autonomy of what game I'm playing that a founder often has control over and um, um, you know, am I playing today? What position am I playing? Um, you know, all of these little sort of simple things. And and when it comes to play, so in addition to that sort of autonomy that a founder often seeks that can give you um, the opportunity to, to orient yourself towards your passion so that you can get into that flow state and have fun while you're working. Um, you know, the, the other opportunity that exists here is uh, when we play, there's a mastery that happens. When we pick up a new, I don't know what it's like for you, but when I pick up a new hobby or a new sport or I start playing a new video game there is a thrill mm -hmm. to to that experience of increasing the scope of what you're trying to take on and the scope of the challenge and so in addition to that autonomy there's sort of the scope of what you're doing um, and 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 leveling up and, and pursuit of mastery for the sake of mastery and the joy that comes from from learning that new thing and getting better and better at it and being able to do more and more and more with it so yeah, yeah. I mean, there's two types of uh, joy that comes from play, right? Like the newness of something, like trying something new that's kind of fun, like, you know, picking up a new game. It might not be the best game because it's new. You're kind of discovering all what you can do in it. You, you know, that's the enjoyment. But also there's a sense of play when you have mastery or something, you know, you've, you know, you play like a hundred thousand hours, like a hundred hours into like uh, into a game and then you know how it works and you know how to operate and like, you know, and that sense of mastery gives you a kind of joy out of it. So Another well, aspect. How do we how do we take that and put it into work? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think we can borrow from this analogy, and there's a reason why um, play has been that north star for us, and it's it's because. Uh, well, let's just take a look at play at a highly complex level. Um, massive multiplayer online gaming seems mm. to be a pretty good place to look for uh, this in in the analogy. And so, when when we look at mass, you know, massive multiplayer online game. Uh, it's not a simple game. It doesn't cap out very quickly. And um, the level of complexity that is present, I think is a good mirror for the kind of complexity that exists in sort of the work and market environments that we operate in. And, and there's, there's the opportunity there to explore play, um, you know, join and collaborate with others as we play in a more complex way, um, and to to take on sort of bigger and bigger things together. Uh, and, and I think that there's an opportunity to borrow from that and many of the mechanics that exist there. And not only that, you know, to if you're a game developer, um, you're on the hook to make your game good. And so the rules by which we play, I think, um, is something uh, we, we almost sort of have defaulted into a particular game we play um, today and a way in which we play it. And I love the, you know, the gaming ecosystem as a place where there is, there is a role in the design of the game. 
and 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 that well-designed games attract people to play them. And so when we when we use this analogy and think of it in that way, it's like, what game are we currently playing? What game do we wish we were playing? And how might we borrow from the beautiful marketplaces of games in massive multiplayer online gaming um, to sort of say, hmm, there should be incentive structures to build better games to play and attract people to play them. Mm-hmm. So, so my question here is, right, like oftentimes people talk about separating work and play, right? Like it, it being important, like work should be work. Work is like what I do and play is something you do to like unwind, right? This is like the old modality of things. But now, especially with working from home and the pandemic and all this kind of things, there's less uh, lifestyle balance. It's, it's less about uh, like work-life balance and more like work-life integration, where everything's kind of like interwoven together, right? So, and when work becomes play and becomes uh, becomes like uh, you know, it kind of sucks you in. What does that do for life, right? Like, how do we integrate life and work together? Is those, are those challenges you te- you think about? Yeah, I mean, I'm having, I'm, I'm thinking about that challenge right now. Like, if, if, you know, my my children are at home. Uh, learning because of the you know the, uh, the Canadian lockdown with uh, you know the COVID pandemic, they're downstairs online learning. Um, I'm up here uh, re- you know recording a podcast, and we're we're trying to figure out um, the logistics of my child working on this assignment uh, downstairs to build an amusement park uh, or b- blueprints for amusement park. I'm up here um, trying to talk about what disruption in the future of work looks like <laughs> with you. So yeah, yeah. I think I think it's already here for many, mm. um, or at, at least there's factors in life right now which have accelerated this, and I think. Uh, my natural inclination towards this is yes, it's a problem, but um, you know, all forms like work is already you know sort of been facing this challenge for quite some time, mm. and you know, one would argue that one's hobby and play also has always had to find a way to integrate into the way. So like, you know, my natural inclination on this one is like, yeah, it's been this way, it's always going to be this way, and each person is going to have to make choices about their um, their values and their balance. And what's important, I think, is that. I'm going to want to play a game um, that is styled in such a way that it matches my values and the way in which um, my family unit, you know, um, is trying to find that balance. And so Mm. when we increase the diversity of the ways in which we can play the game, I can choose how I want to show up and which game I'm playing. And whereas today, I think sometimes there was a one size fits all that needs to continue to diversify. So I don't know. I think that kind of leads into that. Yes, it was here. It was always here. And maybe we just need more T-shirt sizes. I love, this, I love this because um, the past few nights, actually, for the past like, four or five uh, nights, I've been up till like 4 a.m. trying to work out a, on a new project, a product we're launching. And for me, it's like, I don't even see the time. Like some days, yeah. I don't even eat because like I'm just like in that mode, right? Like whenever I play a game, especially if you, uh, I'm like an addict, I, I have an addictive personality. If I'm doing something, I'm really into it. Everything, yeah. Life just blends away from me, right? Like, if I'm if I'm gaming, if I'm in, working on, on, a, on, a, on a project, like everything just kind of tunes out and I'm just and in that moment just time just kind of flies by and my, my wife was talking about this like how are you staying till 4am like like she, she's yelling at me like it's irresponsible whereas for me I'm like no like I'm in my zone like why yeah. not squeeze in like these 60 hours in four days and just like roll this out rather than spread it out over two weeks you know like you can learn faster you can deploy faster and then once it's deployed now you have other time to spend on other things right I'd rather obsessively focus on aspects of my life in like clumps rather than spread it out over long periods of time because you get to learn faster, you get to deploy faster, you're in that zone of like creative juices flowing, right? And yeah. I think a lot in, in life, like especially our infrastructure of society right now, it kind of stamps 
down this game aspect, this this fun aspect uh, of life, right? Like, I remember uh, in in high school, for instance, like I was the quintessential entrepreneur. Hated school, right? Thought it was a prison. Couldn't wait to get out. Skipped yep. school. Like had horrible grades, until I met this one uh, teacher, uh, Miss Miss Grace Price, my grade ten, grade eleven, grade twelve uh, science teacher. She's the one that got me into sciences. I, I love sciences all the time, but. What she did was she created something called uh, price tags, which is uh, coupons for marks ah, that you can win. Yeah. You answer okay. a question in class, you participate, you do these different things, and she'll give you these coupons, and you can deploy it on any assignment test you want. And you can group them together, go to the front, like, I want to put 10, uh, 10 points to my midterm, and yep. your marks go up. And it was such like a, like, it was such a, like a lo-fi way of hacking the, my mind. I went from be, being the back of the class, like bored, looking up the ceilings, trying to skip school, to be like, now center in, in the, from the middle to the, to the front of the board. I'm like, I want to win this game, right? And one of the things she also did was um, she was a, she also did a printout. I think it was against school policy too, but she did it anyways. She printed out a list uh, of student uh, of marks, right, and listed everyone's marks uh, by student number, not by name, by student number. So if you knew your student number, you can go and find uh, your marks and in order of highest to lowest. And she'll mm. update it each week, and then now it's a leaderboard, right? Like I'm addicted. I'm an addicted gamer. I'm like, okay, now we can you can hack hack this system with coupons. So you can win these coupons. All I need to know needed need to play this game is knowledge, right? And then yeah. um and then there's a list I can win, right? And then I have enemies. These these nerds in the front that always always seem to know what they want. I want I want to take them down, right? And she hacked this moment to me, and that's what really got me into school. Right, it, it it wasn't anything different. The same same teaching, the same uh, the same subject matter, all this, the methodology, all yep. it was a key factor that made me super interested. And because of that, because of that one teacher, because of what that methodology, I ended up getting into the one of the most uh, um, um, the hardest uh, uh, programs to get into is neuroscience at UFT, right? And uh, and for me, I think back at this and it's like that was the moment that like if it wasn't yeah. for that teacher, wasn't for that, I wouldn't have done this. So. I always think about this gamification. You know, we hear about this a lot. You know, we want to gamify these things. Mostly, we hear about apps, consumer apps, things like that. But work, like in work situations, people are trying to think about this too. How can we break tasks down into smaller components? How can we gamify this? How can we make this better, right? And I, I've put a lot of thought into this myself in the in company environments I've worked in, in the, in the businesses I've run. How do we gamify and make it more fun, right? Yeah. Like if you look at the most successful people. Um, whether in, in like in investing or like in, in, in entrepreneurship or sports, like they are, they, they, they always talk about, you know, um, playing a game, like they're playing a game, right? Like investing is a game, right? The business is a game, right? Like this, this uh, athleticism is a game, right? And, uh, and like that fun aspect is what really drives them because yeah. it's, it's challenging, taking down challenges, right? In these concepts, right? Yeah. Like. Yeah, the the act of playing is what they love, right? Mm. You know, it's not uh, it's not whether you know, not whether even they're winning or losing, you know, per se. It's like you ask them, well, you know, yeah, but you've had some massive losses, you know, if you were talking about that investment scenario, you've had massive losses, you've 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 almost been down and out, you've you've blown up your accounts multiple times, and you're like, yeah, but. I'm addicted to this particular game and the way it plays and how my mind engages while I'm playing it. And I'm just like, I, I got to go. And so I think the mechanics are everything. We all like to play different games. And I'd argue that we are always playing a game as you're kind of pointing out here. Um, and, and we just often aren't sort of looking at it through that lens. I mean, the other classrooms that you weren't engaged in, they were playing a game too. It had an incentive structure. You were just like, 
I'm not down with this game. <laughs> I don't want to play this one. Yeah. You know, all of a sudden another teacher comes along, play, uh, puts a, a twist on the mechanics of the game. Um, and all of a sudden you're like, yes, this game, I like this kind, <laughs> you know? And so uh, I, I think that's a, a really important aspect of this. This is just understanding, like you said, you know, many of us are, we're playing a game, but are we aware of it? And as we become aware of it, do we also become aware of our preferences of how we like to play? Um, and I, and I think, uh, you know, work is the same, you know, if we take a look at the different work environments and work cultures we've worked in over, um, the period of a career, it's just like the education analogy you're bringing up, you know, they vary, um, they have different incentive structures, different ways in which the game is played, different reputation systems, right? That's a big part of a gaming component, um, in a social, a socialized game or a massive multiplayer online game, there's reputation and, and points and skills and all of mm -hmm. these sorts of things. And I think they all show up in the workplace, um, uh, today. So Brian, what game are you in? <laughs> what game am I playing? Uh, yeah, uh, I love, like, uh, personally, the type of game I like playing and the one that, that gives me a rush and gets me into the flow state is um, is, is, is thinking, uh, like, really sort of mind-bending, interesting ideas about how the world can change. Mm. Um, but But I don't like playing that game if it stays in this sort of academic realm. Like... For me, I immediately want to start to translate that into some sort of progressive set of experiments or an on-ramp to the big vision. And like, I will play that game in almost any market space um, on almost any idea as long as I get I get this weird sort of tingle about the idea and its transformative effects, um, uh, and 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 how I believe that that is that's a better world. That's a world I want to live in, and uh, I can I can I have the skills or the abilities or the experiences or or the network and so some way to to go okay and i'm getting excited about sitting down and planning the first step or the first few steps and, and that's the game i want to play for the rest of my life mm, I, I completely agree with that and i feel like a lot of entrepreneurs are like that too right? like like there's a difference between an entrepreneur and a serial entrepreneur and i've, I've noticed these key differences and the mm. entrepreneur has found something that they lo they love that they want they are like they the, an opportunity they want to drive but serial entrepreneurs you know they're addicted to their uh, they love ideas they love working yeah. on things yeah. you know I, I i've literally like uh, one of my favorite people is uh, uh, matthew human from um, uh, from new vote he's been on our podcast a few times he's working on a really hard pro pro problem right like uh, digitizing democracy and he's working on this uh, you know out of kitchener for about like three four years now right and like nice. and and has this has this great great product he's getting you know a lot of attention but then he'll have like three, four other ideas, you know, he'll, he'll like, I want to do this too. I want to do that. And he'll, and, he, and like, you know, I've like, in the two years I've known him, he's, he's wanted to start like two, three other companies, right? Yeah. Around these things. And, you know, we talk, look at Elon Musk and like, how does he, this one person have all these companies around it? And it's because they understand, they have discovered the mechanics of how to play their game really well. And yeah. all they're doing is deploying that, right? For them, it's fun. And the mechanics behind it is that, like, if you look at like uh, Warren Buffett, for him, money does mean something different from the rest of us. Money is like a unit of a unit of play for him, right? Where like it's not a consumption, it's not a tool of consumption. It's a, it's a tool of uh, of play, right? Like where it's like, oh, I can use this to do this. I can I use a unit of scale to do this, right? Yes. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So speaking of this, going going back to our methodology, right? Like, uh, what is what drove you to uh, your project right now? Oh yeah, yeah. No, that's. Uh... So, I mean, it's been sort of like um, very, very incremental and very progressive. So, um, 
I started out as a, a mechanical engineer um, back in the day, and it was because I thought innovation lived in engineering, um, and that was that was what I had been told in the sort of the high school environment of trying to select your career via selecting what university you're going to go to. And so it was University of Waterloo for mechanical engineering, and um, as I started to take on classes, I had a lot of trouble in the class environment, and I was saved by the co-op term or the internship experience that existed at, at University of Waterloo. Going out every four months into the real world and seeing what actual applied engineering looks like, um, that was interesting. And it was interesting because of the human component. I just hadn't been able to put my finger on that at that point in time. There was something about when you put the human dynamics into the environment of trying to create something together that, that was magical. You know, fast forward, I graduate, um, you know, I don't really still know, you know, how to apply this and ended up joining a, uh, a passenger rail consultancy. It was a very small team. Um, and that's kind of what attracted me because I, I noticed that I liked working in smaller teams um, during my cooperative education terms because I had that greater degree of autonomy and a small team had to try and figure out how to leverage a small number of people to get something big done. And so uh, this group was awesome because, uh, you know, straight out of school, they were giving me a lot of autonomy and a fair bit of scope relative to my experience level. Um, I was flying all over North America working on passenger rail projects. We used to joke that we were kind of like ghostbusters for trains. If something was going wrong on a project or procurement or rollout or something, we often were getting involved. And at first, I, again, had this misconception that I was supposed to take my technical skill sets and, like, you know, be innovative in this environment of, of, uh, of working alongside governments and these other companies. And I was floored at, first of all, how dysfunctional the organizations were that I was participating in and how most of the problems that were emerging had nothing to do with the technology. And in fact, most of the things that were in place were impeding the ability for technology to be used in some sort of innovative fashion, whether it was the code of federal regulations or lobbyist groups that um, were on the airline lobby side and didn't want high-speed rail systems to, you know, net North America together and um, like some of our European and Asian counterparts. And so I was just floored by this and eventually somewhat disillusioned by um, sort of corporatism and bureaucracy and, and the total lack of innovation. And that's when I became enamored with startups. Um, it was around the time my wife started to do her own, uh, you know, business um, and, uh, you know, set up a brick and mortar operation. And I, I was just a addicted to wanting to participate in that act with her um, and became sort of addicted to entrepreneurship, reading up, um, you know, a ton uh, on the tech ecosystems and how they were evolving. And, you know, uh, having come from Waterloo, it made sense to go back to Waterloo um, and start to explore these ideas. I really wanted to start my own startup and dive right in. Um, and I had a friend who was working in a, uh, in a startup come along and say, hey, you know, you've got like the idea of the week or the business plan of the week he's like maybe you should embed yourself in one of these and learn what it's like and mm -hmm. and and sort of brought forward this um he's like here's this option you know your partner just opened up you know a business and is feeling like she's taking some risk you keep the stable job, but go work for a startup. And there's this cool, you know, role in startups called product management, mm -hmm. where you get to do some of these things that you, you know, seem so passionate about doing. 
And so uh, that brought me to uh, Myovision uh, in, in Waterloo uh, for the early days of, of their journey. Um, and uh, so they're in the smart city space. Um, they were working on Internet of Things before it was a buzzword. Um, they were using machine vision to try and count cars and get traffic counts um, in a real-time way before neural networks um, had really kind of become a breakthrough. Um, and, and so it was really fascinating, you know, as they're deploying IoT infrastructure before Amazon even has their beautiful packages, you know, where you just push a button and, you know, you can spin up services related to running an IoT network um, of, of things. And so it was just amazing culture, though. Um, and this is where I was like, yes, this is this is what I want to participate in, this this sort of rapid growth, wear tons of hats, move around where you comply value, talk to people about what you're passionate about doing, and then they're like, yes, please, thank you, go work on that. And, um, you know, that there was just something amazing happening. And I became, again, more interested in the people dynamics of the place, like, how how teams form on new initiatives and move quickly getting product to market um how they build trust amongst one another and actually can collaborate effectively and efficiently versus you know ending up in you know meeting fatigue and getting nothing done and uh as we started to scale up i became fascinated with the organizational behavior of this hierarchy of of managers and watching the bureaucracy i had come from creeping into the startup and thinking uh this doesn't feel good something's about to to lose its, its sort of beautiful thing. And, um, and so I started to go down a rabbit hole um, at that point um, uh, on how, how, what people are out there experimenting with new models for organizing mm. um, that could maintain what we saw as a beautiful behavior when the team is like less than 100 people. Um, you know, that scrappy, flat, agile startup like thing. And, and so I just started reaching, you know, reaching into um, different things. And it led me into, you know, s some of the standards like scaled up agile frameworks and trying to understand how all that works. And um, also some of the uh, uh, sort of more interesting ones like, you know, holacracy is the sort of the cutting edge of like self-managed managerless teams um, and some of the research around, you know, organizations that were playing with this Zappos probably being one of the most famous mm -hmm. and uh, I, I, I just started to become more and more fascinated with these decentralized, remote working, um, uh, f truly flat in the sense that they don't have management paradigms. They have like, you know, governance um, and economic paradigms yeah. inside the business, you know, and it's like, whoa, the free market um, economics and, and the guidance of the legal structures that leave me a free citizen and get me excited as an entrepreneur um, and budding entrepreneur at the time, I was like, holy smokes, we could do some amazing things if we start to infuse some of these protocols um, and frameworks and allow people to move in the system on their own accord. And uh, so that, that's what led me um, down the rabbit hole, experimenting initially within MyoVision um, uh, around how, how do we do this? And one of the biggest problems is, is sort of information. You have to have, when something's moving really quickly, you have to have a sort of a, a source of truth of, of how it's moving in order to maintain trust in it. And you do that at the small scale, just inside your own head and the relationships you have with people. It's like, I know, I know the 80-ish people here on some level, or at least know a person who knows the person. And I, I start to build trust on a very sort of human and visceral level. And as things start to scale up, I need something else I can trust. And an org chart does a great job of that. So-and-so reports to so-and-so reports to so-and-so and the, 
the stability and rigidity of it creates a structure and I can try to anchor myself into that. Um, and if we were going to try and rip that out or, you know, replace it with something else, we, we had to be able to see it in some tangible way. So we need to be able to map this organization and watch how it was changing. And so this, this is sort of the journey uh, that eventually has, has led me um, and my fellow co-founders um, to Sobel. And it, it sent us down, it's, it's neat, each of these things ends up, you know, on a, a rabbit hole, opens up another rabbit hole, and, and it eventually um, led us to, to the blockchain ecosystem, because a lot of the, when we were doing customer discovery around these ideas, we noticed that uh, these folks who were working on these decentralized technologies um, uh, are, are modeling the behaviors of the technologies they participate in. And so they were, in turn, trying to create remote-first, um, highly decentralized um, power structures in their organizations. And we were like, whoa, um, there's something neat uh, in Conway's law here of like, you know, the folks who are working on these technologies and these technologies mirroring, and it reminded us so much of the agile movement where, you know, as things move from hardware to software development, um, so too the behaviors go from waterfall projects with their Gantt charts and project plans to these rapid iterations um, of the 20 year journey um, of changing organization behavior that we call the agile movement. Um, and I think another one's coming and this is, this is what led us to found Sobel. Man, you spoke so much of uh, so much of what's in my mind. You kind of framed it in such a such a like a uh, uh, in, in, in a um, you organized it for me. <laughs> you organized it. Um, so breaking this down a little bit, right? What are the mechanics of like taking turning work into play? Um, is it making things measurable? Uh, how do you do deal with accountability? Like, how do we do this? I think we need to. Um codify the mechanics of the game. And this is where I think blockchain um, and distributed ledger technologies and the systems that are associated with these decentralized technologies that are emerging are mm -hmm. absolutely critical. Because the internet brought us these informational systems and we could, we could share and transmit information really quickly. That's awesome. Um, but when it comes to work, the incentive structures are real. Um, they're tangible and they they're they're important. My reputation um, when I participate in a in an ecosystem and and my reputation on LinkedIn, um, uh, you know that's important to me. Um, and not because I just want to, you know, for ego's sake or something along those lines. Um, in a food and shelter sense, my reputation is my ability to work in many mm -hmm. cases, right? And uh, that's so that's one incentive structure that needs to start to become digitized in a, in a better way than it is today in, in order to unlock this. And the other thing breaking it down that's really important that blockchain started to kind of open our eyes to is the transactions. Like some of the problems that exist um, today in the whole work environment when it comes to like working on really innovative things is we look at, we look at what's this massive you know movement um, you know of the Ubers the Airbnbs and the gig economies and you know the Upworks and etc. In a highly transactional environment, um, we can do these transactions you know fairly easily and fairly trustfully um, on these types of platforms. But if you want to start to take on bring the philosophies of the gig economy and create that kind of like openness and 
open marketness to um, you know what they term knowledge work or creative work um, or innovative work, it gets hard. And because the structures that are there today are things like equity and investment, right? So as an investor, I invest for rights for future return as a founder and ESOP programs. And like you start to get into also employment law. Um, but all of this comes down to the fact that I need to trust um, that what you say my future reward is or my salary is um, or, um, you know, the bounty is on this, you know, piece of work, as you start to break down and atomize the work and want to open it up and make it more of this free market game, uh, then you have to have some backbone um, that is not controlled by a centralized party um, that we can trust to transact on and and know that when I hold a token that says I have a right to future equity on Project X because I put some sweat equity in on it um, or, you know, uh, that, that I truly have it um, and that it can't be taken away from me. Um, and that's where I think the blockchain innovations and ecosystems, one that they can, you know, uh, create digitally, you know, trusted identities um, that are backed by this technology, as well as uh, a trusted um, disintermediated layer um, of transaction, we can build on top of that. Um, and you can see even already then they're building on top of it with the decentralized finance protocols, right? Like obviously finance is a big part of what we're talking about here because we're talking about equity and transactions of, of something that is representative of a dollar value, if it was salaries or, um, you know, a commission or whatever it is you need that backbone. And I think that backbone is emerging in the mm. form of the, the blockchain and the decentralized identities that, uh, that it houses as well. And so with that, I think we can start to then break down, well, what, what are the mechanics of the game? The mechanics of the game can be simple things like um, we have an objective or a mission. Um, we start to break down um, work that we would like to be done. Some of that work could be done on a gig gig board. Some of that, much of that work is too complex and complicated or, or nascent to be understood to be worked on in that way. And so we maybe want it to be a little bit more like tours of duty. This is a conversation that's already been existing in Silicon Valley culture for quite some time. And what if we could start to unlock tours of duty um, in protocolized arenas where there's templatized uh, agreements and transaction rails um, under which investors can come in and play, um, builders can come in and play, um, serial entrepreneurs can come in and play um, and move around, which is something that a serial entrepreneur often feels friction with. Um, I can play in more diversified ways. Um, I can transact in more dynamic um, and granular ways so that it's not like, here's your lump sum of uh, options that vest and we hope you stick around for four years and are as valuable as we think you are, you know? <laughs> like, I, I think I think this is the on-ramp and this is how we break down the problem is like, what are the mechanics of the game we're playing? Can we uh, start to do so um, in a digital way that is trustful? Um, and then from that, it's gonna allow us to move faster and more granularly, I believe. And that's gonna unlock some pretty interesting variations on the game. And it's akin to, you know, going back to your story of like the teacher who flipped flipped the script a bit yeah. um, and took the same same objective, which is I want to educate Ravi um, and his fellow classmates. <laughs> uh, 
and decided to play with the mechanics a little bit and see how the outcomes, uh, you know, emerged. And mm -hmm. I, I think of these, you know, sort of innovation arenas emerging that are a little bit like these massive multiplayer online games that have sort of uh, mechanics that exist and are codified into the system and they're digitally transacted in a trustful way. Um, but the way in which you show up to play the game and the way in which the game will get played is almost not even predictable. And because of how complex and adaptive it is that the person who designed the game is effectively also playing the game by trying to respond to the way in which the players play the game. And you just end up with something sort of beautiful and vibrant and the level of creativity that can emerge from that, I think is, is fascinating to me. Man, this is so fascinating. So this is a, this is a pro this is actually a project that I actually worked on. Uh, or trying to trying to do um, not at the level of scale that uh, you were, uh, well, I was at um, at the University of Toronto's um, Innovation Center, right? So I realized one of the main problems that a lot of startups fail is sales. They're not good at it, right? Like yep. if you look at like a, a startup, and if you're you know talking about innovation space and, and innovating, like you might be really good at your field or solving the problem you're solving, but the issue is you not you might not be good at accounting. You might not be good at sales. You might not be good at like all the different other things you have to do to get your ideas out there, right? Yeah. Now we start like, why do you have to build, why does everyone who wants to solve a problem have to build a company around it and scale it and do all this? When yeah. not, a, not everyone is meant, you know, uh, can do that, right? Yeah. So it actually deters the market. The market selects for people who can actually build these systems rather than just focus on what they do. And a lot of the people who are really good at what they do can't do that. And I saw a lot of people who are like solving, solving like, um, you know, um, trying to recycle plastics, trying to do like these like amazing projects, right? you know, like uh, you know, leukemia research, trying to commercialize that, like fail because yeah. they might be really good at, at their profession or what they, with the solution, but you know, all the other things. So how can we almost like decentralize, uh, you know, these companies? So like, Aspects of the company doesn't have to act inside the company. Um, there's a great concept by uh, Peter Dr Peter Drucker, I think, uh, back in the mm -hmm. '60s, wrote a book about uh, the nature of the firm, right? Ah, uh, yes, yes. <laughs> right. Sorry. Uh, I I love this idea because he talks about the mechanics of why companies hire internally versus externally. Like, why yes. do you hire somebody? Like, if you look at like a normal worker, like an average worker, they don't, you know, you're actually over as a company overpaying for them because they're not working uh, completely 100%, you know, for you even during the work hours. Yep. Most of the time, what you're really paying for is security, right? Mm -hmm. You work, they, you know, you uh, the security of them working in your environment, them being on call when uh, when the company needs it, but and working with the company infrastructure. And Peter Drucker in the 60s talked about this. It's like there's going to be a point where technology can allow that same level of security to be able to function outside of the firm. So just like you would hire an outside firm, you can hire people externally, more freelancers, you know, and atomize the firm a little bit. So the core firm is going to be the core concept people where everything else is external. One of the right. major cases of this is in, in finance, right? Uh, in, in the 80s and 90s, uh, the biggest, uh, one of the biggest investment firms, I think, was uh, Citibank. Uh, their investment firm, um, you know, the, the investors, uh, uh, the investment uh, side of the things uh, employed about 280,000 people globally, and most of them were just bottom up collecting and doing all this paperwork stuff. That same same department is now run by four people, right? Because technology yeah. has completely flattened that uh, flattened that aspect. You know, taking all these aspects of the company and automated parts of it. But the same technologies allow four other people to join um, to make, join together and make their own firm solving the same kind of investment problems they are and deploy the same kind of solutions. They might not have the same access to capital, but they can perform in the same kind of way. So technology being this great equalizer, that's what it is, right? But more yep. than that, there's ability to like, 
you know, flatten and, and make things work outside the firm, right? External to the firm. And it, it, within technology, like there's also an analog to this, right? Like uh, it's, it's becoming more of a, of a catchphrase now. It's like protocols, not platforms. Yes. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. So de deploying a protocol layer where multiple platforms can work under this one protocol means that, yeah, you can, your solution in-house can, can operate, but you're operating under a joint protocol. Um, you know, like one of the, one of the best, uh, you know, WebRTC, um, the IRC programs, uh, and now um, matrix.org, another project that I'm, I'm following really well, right? Yep. Are these protocol layers that now allow, you know, WhatsApp, Slack, uh, all these communities now to like work, you know, to communicate interoperatively, right? So from a WhatsApp chat, now you can talk to a, uh, a, a Discord channel, right? And it can work because everyone's working on this protocol layer. And I, I think about like, how can companies work like that? How can we work like this, right? Where the labor stack, right, is operating on a protocol, right? And then the companies are like a platforms that brings them in-house when needed, but have access to a decentralized workforce that they can deploy. And, and the protocol gives them that trustless atmosphere that the work will get done, the security is there, and the, the, the IP is controlled. And like you said, I think the main aspect of this is reputation. If someone screws somebody over, or like if, if you have a bad actor, you get identified, well, that's going to harm you for a long time. Right, yep. so the positive and, and co the pros and cons between doing, uh, you know, being a bad actor is measured by this protocol layer. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So you're you're bang on. I mean, and that's exactly it. I think I think these protocols need to emerge, and these protocols need to emerge to. Um, to unbundle the firm as per, you know, the, the reference uh, to the Drucker uh, description of the firm. And, and in order to do so, um, and one of, one of my, um, uh, my, one of my friends, Rob Solomon um, has, has, has talked about this with a project he's worked on called Cone, um, which is the idea of starting to make um, uh, the organization feel less like an organization and more like um, a marketplace of uh, micro enterprises um, uh, transacting. And so in terms of protocols, you go look at this you sort of like hmm, what is the protocol or protocols that will be needed in order to support this well we're going to need um something to manage the cap cable you know cap tables digitally um in a somewhat decentralized um you know way we're going to need um a way to uh to transact um you know dollars really quickly um in in this system we're going to need uh legal protocols um that are digitized so less paperwork um uh and more uh more contracts that that start to actually be you know fuse the boundaries between um it you know the, what the contract states is going to happen um and the transactions that actually happen so i mean you take something like an employment agreement for example and like what if your employment agreement also upon execution effectively then starts distributing your salary and equity rewards um because the agreement um digitally is the contract that 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 governs that um uh you know you you know uh you know tickle the contract with the exit clause and it actually runs the exit you know, protocol. And so, yeah, I think, I think there also is the decision-making. How do you make decisions if it's not the manager who makes the decisions? So governance um, and, and, and reference to the serial entrepreneur who's thinking about what does democracy look like when we digitize it? I just think governance and the work that's happening with these decentralized autonomous organizations and all the governance mechanics that are emerging in the blockchain ecosystem, you know, how do we trustfully make a decision and know that it was a legitimate decision? And there will be protocols uh, around that. There'll be protocols around you know reputation systems if you look again to the you know sort of the ethereum ecosystem they talk and, and the blockchain ecosystems they talk about these decentralized identities and verifiable claims um so that parties could transact on a reputational basis and say i know ravi and ravi 
uh, could verify I know Brian, and then Ravi could also verify um, that Brian was on the BX uh, Disruptors podcast. So, mm. uh, so you see, and then we now have you know some, something that is is trustfully designated about our reputation in a digital format. And so when you bring some of these protocols together um, and marry them up, then you can see how this will start to allow work to become digital. And your friend who didn't know how to do sales might be able to more quickly enact, if you're familiar with like slicing of pie methodology for bootstrappers, where when they're in the pre-money state, they're dynamically managing their cap table. And it's just a virtual cap table because it's, you know, they haven't had some sort of liquidity event or entry of money. It's just people working on sweat equity. You mm -hmm. know, they could start micro slicing on agreements for commissions for deals bought in um, and, and then get to the liquidity event. Well, now, the hard part of doing that is I really got to trust you in the Excel spreadsheet we're managing together about this supposed downstream cap table and event um, and, and know that it's all going to work out. But if that, again, was on some sort of trusted digital um, transaction layer or protocol, then like, wow, you know, maybe there will be vibrant of arenas, uh, you know, almost like these these global remote decentralized venture studios where, you know, we can go in and play. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Um, this is something that we're working on currently, right? The idea of like, how do we take the, the campus environment, especially like a, the innovation campus environment and digitize it and create mm -hmm. like a federated model where like there's multiple campuses working on different things, but like all under this protocol layer where we can innovate, right? And the innovation is owned by the person, but the, everything's, everything's kind of decentralized, right? Like, so... Uh, we're currently working on is, is, a, the, is the, the communication for, uh, layer, right? How do we communicate this? How do we find people? How do we, how do we, how do we run all this? And what's really interesting, again, protocols, not platforms, is that other people are building the pro protocols. Exactly. Um, right. <laughs> and, and I love this aspect so much because for about two years, we were trying to build a platform. And the problem with that is that, you know, we don't have the product leverage for it. We don't have the greatest product. But when you work on a protocols, you're leveraging the technologies that others are implementing and the governance structures that already exist. And all you're doing is deploying that towards a solution. Um, yeah. But going back to how we can do this for innovation and, and companies and going back to, again, your company, right? And uh, what you're building. Uh, is this meant more for organizations or is it meant for a decentralized workforce? Is it meant for startups? Yeah. What do you envision? I mean, so we're really pragmatic about the way we approach things at Sobel. So we we have this beautiful sort of vision, um, and we share this vision with many others um, in the tech ecosystem, particularly the Ethereum blockchain ecosystem, uh, because Sobel is a um, a mesh XYZ venture um, under Consensus's portfolio, uh, which is a uh, investment uh, group that Joe Lubin, one of the co-founders of Ethereum, has uh, founded. And so, you know, there's an ecosystem of, of folks who are building and who are looking at these protocols and Consensus contributes to protocols. And so I think for us, though, to get back to your question, it's like, okay, we're, we're dreaming with others um, and actually deploying experiments with others, uh, but we have to meet people where they are today, too. And so we were like, what's a thing we can start working on um, if we have this hypothesis that these protocols are emerging and we'd like to be a contributor to them too, um, but what's going to be needed in the future, but we can use today. And one of the things we realized is that you know, even organizations that are, you know, using today's, you know, hierarchical reporting lines based org structures and functional and divisional structures of a standard firm 
are recognizing that they're becoming more remote. They're becoming more dynamic because the agile movement has, you know, been with them for a couple of years now. And they're recognizing when, you know, they need to be leaner, they need to be more agile. And then that introduces dynamics. Uh, you have to make faster decisions. Uh, you will shift roles faster, even in a large scale enterprise. And so, uh, and you know, the title um, and who you report to might not be shifting as quickly, but the number of hats I'm wearing and how I'm showing up um, and the agreements I'm forming around accountability of, of what we're taking on, um, what roles I'm going to play while we're taking it on, on this project team, on this working group, on this innovation team, um, on this cross-functional scrum, uh, that's moving. And you start to see these dynamic role marketplaces emerging, even within large-scale enterprise with traditional, you know, reporting structures. And so Sobol uh, started to become fascinated with the fact that this future needs to be mapped and the map is more like a graph um you know model they we've, we talk about it as a hey maybe they're not flat organizations they're networked organizations and so mm -hmm. we've been fascinated at sobol by the atomic units um of of the organization no matter Very if cool. it's this crazy future one or if it's the you know today's um in you know feeling more decentralized decision making mechanics emerging and more dynamic and agile patterns and so we were like what are the atomic units we got people we got teams. Those are key, you know, accountability units because accountability is is what drives trust in this organization. Um, and so, who I report to is probably not the strongest form of accountability for this highly dynamic organization. Maybe our goals are the goals are all connected together. Mm. OKR theory has been showing that for you know quite a while, but OKRs still often are very siloed in organizations. And like, you know, connecting all the pillars, business drivers, whatever you want to call them, all together across the organization. Um, um, and, and allowing that to almost become like dynamic code, you know, allows you to insert, change, move, um, you know, uh, a hierarchy of, of objectives, goals, business drivers and KPIs. And, and, and we can start to see a web of accountability of what's driving the business. And then we can watch that the structure is going to move as well. You know, the roles will shift in, in alignment with what you're trying to do. And so the roles, the team structures, all of that is going to more rapidly change and it's going to change in response to that. And it's going to be linked up to that. This team is trying to take on these objectives. This person has decided that they're taking on accountability for this. This role is accountable for these domains and these decision types. Um, and this team has formed an agreement with this team uh, that's an internal services level agreement of how they're going to collaborate to get something done. It's almost like an internal joint venturing. And so mapping all of this in the relationships between all of these people teams roles agreements goals um starts to kind of map that dynamic accountability and i believe that that is useful and needed and we've we've you know got customers in large-scale enterprise with recognizable names using sobel to try and solve that problem today um but that same system that same map um that same ontology is needed when you unlock this decentralized future and it's more like an open marketplace and not really a firm or it's it's people are firms of themselves interacting with firms you know <laughs> Um, so I, I, so yeah, at, at Sobol, we're, we're a B2B SaaS app today, um, uh, working with, uh, very progressive consultants in, in enterprise and SME organizations who are having the challenge of we're moving quickly. We're making decisions. We're changing our structure and we're almost like GitHub for your organizational DNA or your accountability graph. Yeah. And so, uh, 
So that's that's where we've started, and we've started to think about okay, how w- might we start to then leverage governance protocols, um, uh, you know, decentralized finance protocols, and these other things, uh, smart contracts for employment agreements or or uh, sharing agreements or um, joint venturing, you know, and how might those start to play with Sobol someday uh, in the future, and how might we experiment with those along the way? But you know, that's what we do today: B two B SaaS app, helping teams uh, better map uh, what accountability looks like as you move into a more distributed, remote, and decentralized future. Man, that sounds beautiful. <laughs> it's uh, so beyond this elegance, right, of this of this protocol system that can you know decentralize and and give kind of a, a different structure for how we do work and make it more playful. Uh, and give us uh, give us more measurable results. Uh, you know, one of the uh, one of the aspects of DeFi also is like they talk about. It's like why do we have to get paid every two weeks? Why can't we get paid uh, per day, per hour? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like yeah. you know, as as I do work, right? Yeah. Like these these new models of work is gonna uh, is coming to be. And uh, you mentioned this term before, knowledge workers, right? The idea of uh, the uh, the information the information age. Right, gave us information uh, information workers, which were uh, people who used uh, who plugged in and, and and used data and and systems, but now the the machine age is giving us knowledge workers, which are people who build systems. Right, um, so workers who who look to like oh not just um, you know uh, interact with information, but to build scalable systems, so uh, their output actually increases over time. Right, um, it's a new model of work, and the worry is. Just like uh, the railroad worker was automated away by the steam engine, right? Uh, by 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 steam devices. Just like the factory worker was, you know, was uh, was taken away by automation, and people were forced to become uh, information workers, right? There's going to be a radical shift in uh, in the way, in the way we think, in the way we do, in the in the way in the way we uh, educate, right? Mm. Uh, do you feel that um, there's going to be this this radical information this age is is uh, dawning upon us and how quickly are we moving towards it are we are, are there going to be a lot of people left behind uh who can catch up yeah i mean this is a really important question and i think uh i think my first reaction i think there's a utopian version and there's a dystopian version of this and i think mm-hmm. it's kind of on us um and those who have influence power and money to make the decision as to which one they want to participate in um uh, and these types of things as human systems do ebb and flow um you know how things uh play out in terms of uh distributions and uh and these types of things but i i think to that aside, that caveat aside of like, it could be a utopia, it could be a dystopia, you know, who am I to crystal ball and predict how we will play this? I do believe that there is a shift afoot, that it's already happening. And it's that what we previously called entrepreneurship, intrapreneurship, and said there are very select few who will be called to this um, and have the skills to do it um, is, is is rapidly expanding. And the reason is, is because I think we're, we're saying that an entrepreneur and an entrepreneurial mindset does not necessarily need to be only for those who are the quadruple or uh, the quadruple threat, <laughs> you know, uh, can sell, can, can innovate. Innovate, uh, knows technology, knows people, um, and uh, IQ, EQ, like you know, just you know these 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 anomalies, um, and it only being for these anomalies. And I think that more and more of these protocols to collaborate um, uh, are emerging uh, that allow me to have uh, spe- specialization and still be 
far more entrepreneurial in the nature of which I show up to work um, and play on this new playing field. And so I think, yeah, there's already a shift afoot to being far more entrepreneurial and, and unlocking the entrepreneurial capacity that's already existing in the average citizen. When you just look at, you know, uh, Etsy for example, and what's happening there um, and how much more entrepreneurial some of my neighbors are who are finding things that they enjoy doing and are with these protocols and platforms uh, finding that they can have access to, to, to marketplaces and collaborators who will help lift it up with them. You know, uh, and and so that I think uh, that's already happening. And I think that that will uh, hopefully, if we maintain that kind of like, um, uh, if we, we maintain a focus on that type of accessibility um, and allowing a diverse set of talents and skills and passions to show up to this and, and to reduce the barriers to being able to show up um, and play this new game, then we will probably not end up into a plutocracy um, uh, and, a, and a super concentrated power law style um, you know, wealth distribution. We can, we can kind of like smooth that out a little bit. And if we don't... Um, yeah, then we could trend towards some of the dystopias associated with this. Um, but I think that the human system, you know, it being uh, a, a vibrant system has a tendency to have a countermeasure to that. <laughs> and that and that w w if, if we're not cognizant of that, um, then it just shows up um, in our mm. economics, in our, in our politics, um, in our societal communities um, in negative ways, and that that starts to become a forcing function for um, uh, correcting it. And so uh, I'm hopeful for uh, the, ut you know, the more utopian vision of things, or what some refer to as game B, where we start to recognize um, that the ability for all of us to participate um, and to to better sort of understand that we're in a bit of a, a closed loop system here called the Earth. Yes, Elon Musk is trying to leave, but we're all here. Uh, and, and if we start to learn how to, to play uh, a new game of sharing inside of that, uh, then we will also unlock the ability to start to have it feel more like play. These, these things we're talking about of like making work more remote and decentralized means that abundance starts to emerge. I'm no longer afraid of, you know, finding my employer locally. I can find my employer globally. The employer is no longer afraid of locking me in at an added cost um, because they don't feel there's talent scarcity, even for software developers, because they can go anywhere in the world for great software developers and find them easily through this type of system. And as that abundance comes on, online um, and more and more mechanisms for abundance come online again it starts to feel more and more like play because we're just pursuing um, what feels good and fun um, because the access to resources and the access to capacity is is broken uh, is, is made so much easier wow brian uh this has been amazing like the, our time just kind of flew right by i feel like i can talk to you for like another few hours about this these kind of these kind of things um Thank you so much for coming on, and uh, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I, feel like I, I feel like I learned a lot from you. You condense a lot of great ideas into uh, very easy to follow uh, tidbits. Um, yeah. So, Brian, this has been amazing. Uh, I hope uh, we can have you on um, in the six months, get some updates into how you evolved and shifted. Uh, we love having repetitive guests uh, on the show. And uh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for coming on. Uh, thank you, Ravi. It was a lot of fun, and I'd, I'd love to do that. I think that would be a lot of fun. Perfect. Uh, stick around. We'll do a quick debrief. But for everyone uh, who listened in, thank you. <laughs>